Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. When I was in college, I volunteered regularly at an organization called Youth for Christ. Uh, Helped out on a weekly basis with middle school kids, uh, played with them, ran with them, did teaching with them, um, and jumped into small groups with them. And then throughout the week sometimes would even get together with them take them out for Coke, and it was, it was me kind of jumping in and learning what does it mean to relate. And, and I mean, as a college student, you're kind of in a prime location because uh, middle schoolers look at college kids as being pretty cool. And so there's an easy inroad with middle school kids. So week in and week out, I kind of did that. Um, and at the end of the year at our college, it was a, a little Christian college, and it uh, lifted the value of service. And uh, so for people who at the end of the year had kind of logged X number of hours in community service and in volunteering and giving, there was like a rewards or or a a recognition banquet. And uh, I had served with a bunch of my friends and they all got invited and I didn't. And I had put in just as much as them uh, and sometimes more. And... um, I was kind of annoyed. I was pretty frustrated that my name didn't show up on the list, that I didn't get a t-shirt saying, hey, good job, way to go serving all year. And I I just got left out. And I don't know if I was supposed to record the hours or someone someone else was supposed to notice me and the incredible service that I was giving, but I got left out. And I felt, uh, I, I felt frustrated by that. What does that uh, what does that do to my service? What does that say about my volunteering? What does that say about my heart? Does it, does it say anything? What? I'm, that I'm kind of doing it for myself. And I'm, I'm not sure if that was entirely true. I hope that wasn't entirely true. But it sure is reflected in that when I don't get recognized, I get bitter. When I don't get recognized, I get frustrated. And I held on to that um, for a little while, and I don't know, one of my friends might have gone and got a sh- uh, shirt and said, hey, I stole one for you here, um, and that made me feel better then, because <laughs> that's the answer. We're in this summer series through the parables where we've kind of asked, Jesus, can we be a student of yours this summer? Can we learn from you this summer? And as Jesus told stories with a point, with a purpose to kind of get into our lives and Uh, sometimes offer comfort, sometimes offer hope, sometimes stir us to action. We've we've tried to get to the point of the parables and say, what can we learn? And and what is Jesus, what is the life that he's calling us to? So some of the parables, um, a number of them have been about the kingdom. And say, questions are asked like, Jesus, how can your kingdom be present if there's still all this evil in the world? Uh, Some of the parables ask the question, how are we supposed to treat sinners? Are we supposed to kind of hold them at a distance so that they don't pollute us? Or, as Jesus would say, like we're supposed to welcome them and we're actually supposed to go to them, uh, to make an invite uh, to them. Some of the the parables offer hope. They say, the way that it is now is not how it will always be. One day, the kingdom will come in full and... And I want you to hold on to hope. And we've talked about hope not being just this kind of wishful thinking, but this uh, confident expectation. Someday, someday, 
all will be made right. And I can hold on to that expectation. I can hold on with great confidence, with great hope. But today, we don't get a comfortable parable. Today, we don't get a hope parable. Today, we get a challenge parable. Today, we get a parable where Jesus has a sharp word. It's a word of, uh, a word of warning, and it's a word uh, that is supposed to be is supposed to cause us discomfort, or at least make us uncomfortable. Um, we'll get into that today, and um, my hope is that you get uncomfortable. My hope is that I, I have, throughout this week, as I've uh, struggled through this passage, uh, I've been uncomfortable in it, and I think that's part of the intent of Jesus. So I'll talk a little bit about the context. This is in Matthew 25. Matthew 24 and 25 uh, has been called the Olivet Discourse. He's sitting on the Mount of Olives. It's just before he enters Jerusalem and he goes into uh, his trial, his arrest, his beating, his eventual murder, and then glory happens and he rises uh, rises from the dead. This is just before that, before the Last Supper, and it kind of culminates in his last formal teaching with his disciples. He's sitting around the disciples and they've got questions because they've heard him talking about like when he comes in glory, when he comes in power, and when is that going to happen, Jesus? And he gives some kind of future shadows of what is coming. And then in chapter 25, he gives kind of two or three parables, depending on how you look at it, um, that talk about when his kingdom comes in full. So the first one is, uh, has been called the parable of the ten virgins, uh, which is a weird name for us, but it, it helps us uh, if we just would call it the parable of the ten bridesmaids because it's about a wedding party and a great expectation for the groom that is coming. And the point of the parable is that we're supposed to be ready, that we're supposed to wait with eager anticipation for Jesus coming back. That's the first parable of the ten bridesmaids. The second parable is actually what Michael is preaching over at West today, and he'll come back over here next week and preach, is the parable of the talents. And the point of the parable of the talents, while the bridesmaids was, be ready, the talents is, be faithful. That you have been entrusted with this message of light, with this message of hope. You have been entrusted with the gospel. Don't you dare hide it. Don't you dare bury it. You are to steward this well means to carry it off and, and to do things with it so that the gospel grows, so that it expands in the lives of people. Don't you dare hide this. So be ready and be faithful. And then Jesus comes to the end of chapter 25 that we're going to jump into today. A lot of people uh, call it the parable of the sheep and the goats, and we'll get into it today. It's not really a parable. He uses this analogy, but then he has pretty much just direct words for people that would call themselves his disciples. So there's analogy, but it's not uh, kind of like a full-fledged parable. But let's, let's uh, jump into it. We'll pray, and then we'll, uh, um, we'll unpack it. This is Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he identifies himself so often as the Son of Man. So when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right 
but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you, a stranger, and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Uh, Let's pray, and we'll jump in. Jesus, we want to learn from you. Where you have hope, we want your hope. Where you have encouragement, we want your encouragement. And would you make us bold enough to pray the prayer where we ask when you have challenge, would you help us to accept your challenge? Would you help us to welcome that? Would you humble us to be the kind of people who can hear from you even when it makes us uncomfortable? Help us today to hear from you. Amen. I just really simply kind of want to go through the pieces of the parable and talk through what is going on here and um, what is Jesus identifying and what is he saying about it and then what, what does it mean for us here today. So in verse 31, he says, The Son of Man, when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Uh, Jesus is so often talking about himself as the Son of Man in the book of Matthew. And the Son of Man was the rescuer. The Son of Man was the coming king who would uh, save people from their trouble and be God's deliverer. And Jesus takes that and he, he puts that name on him. But then he sort of, in this uh, section, he combines the Son of Man and the king. It starts out as the Son of Man, and he'll sit on the throne, and then the people come before him, and a little bit later, he says, the king will start talking. What I love about this is that Jesus is calling himself, what? Our king. Jesus is calling himself our king. And the king in this section judges. This is a hard thing for us to grapple with. We like the no judgment piece. We like the hope and we like the encouragement. But Jesus is very clear 
that there is a day coming when he comes back and he comes in glory and he sits as king on his throne and he judges. He calls all of us to account to stand before him and he judges us. He looks straight into the insides of our guts and he calls us out for what he sees there. Jesus holds both positions. What I love about this this parable is Jesus calls himself the king, but then a little while later he also talks about, like when you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers. And so he's a king and brother at the same time, which means we have a family relationship, and yet we're not buddy-buddy. Yet we have a great, deep reverence for him, where he is the boss, he is the master and commander. He is the king who sits on the throne. And while he loves us, while he loves us, uh, that is not, uh, it's not always nice. It's not always comfortable. He calls all nations. And what most people think he's talking about is like every individual from every nation. Because he starts to separate one from another. So it's like every person that has ever walked the face of this earth, will stand before the king and they will be alone in that moment. And what is in them will be revealed. This is all, all of your serving weekly uh, at Youth for Christ in college is drawn out and the king will recognize it. And all of your deepest, darkest junk that you don't want and the bitterness that you harbor toward others and the stuff that you did that you know was wrong. And, and even in this teaching, he would get the stuff that you didn't do, that you should have been doing. All of that gets laid bef- bare before the judge. Every person uh, throughout the entire world, throughout all of history. And he, here's the analogy then. He's like, like a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. And all that's relevant here is that he's using an analogy so he can get to separation. So a shepherd would separate sheep and goats. Really not, there wasn't like, uh, uh, goats are bad, and uh, sorry, that was, a, that was almost a really bad joke. Um, uh, goats are bad, and sheep are good. They're both valuable. Uh, sheep may be a little bit more valuable, but um, sometimes they were thinking sheep can stay warmer at night. They want a higher elevation, stay cool. And the goats need a warmer so that shepherds would separate them so that they could care for them each their own way. The point, it doesn't go any further than that. The point is, just like a shepherd separates, I'm, I'm going to have a separation of my own. And then he, he leaves the analogy beside. Uh, and it's not about value and it's not about anything else. But he says, now I'm going to talk about what, why the separation. And he, so he talks about a blessing. He looks at the sheep on his right, which is the, um, the honored position in the culture. The most honored position was to, to be on someone's right hand. Uh, you extend your right hand as a, uh, as a sign of honor. And he says to the sheep on the right, there's a blessing. It's come be blessed by uh, the king. Come be blessed by the father. And, and receive the inheritance as sons and daughters of this kingdom that has been prepared for you since when? Since the foundations of the world. That means before you were even thought of by your parents, 
God was busy at work creating a place for you. That he has, from the beginning, had a kingdom in mind of how it is supposed to be. That if you want to get to God's heart and God's will of everything about what God wants, this is the kingdom that he has been preparing for so long. And he gives the reason why they're to be blessed, why the sheep are to be blessed, why the righteous are to be blessed. And he says, I was, I was hungry and I was thirsty, and I was a stranger or an alien, a foreigner from a different land. I was naked or sick. I was, I was in prison, and you met me in those places. And they're surprised to hear it. Like, well, um, when? And these are, the, these, these are the sheep, the ones that were blessed. And they say, when, when did we see you? When, when did we see you in all of those troubling places. And Jesus says, when you did it for one of the least of my brothers, you did it for me. And so this is about how they, uh, how they welcome Jesus. And, and Jesus says, how you welcome others on my behalf is about me. You can't say that you welcome me and then not welcome people in trouble. So I have struggled with this one. Because Jesus says, whenever you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. And so we want to say, well, who are the brothers? Who are the least of these, my brothers, that Jesus is talking about? And scholars kind of go back and forth arguing about it. There's a real popular uh, line of thinking that says, uh, brothers is just humankind, it's mankind, and we're judged based on how we treat people, and uh, the more good we do to people that, that can put us in good standing with God. And there's, there's some conflict in that, uh, that, that it starts to get to like, well, we earn our place in heaven or in the kingdom? And there's another, there's another uh, line of thinking that I, I was really, I'll be honest with you, uh, I was really surprised with how many New Testament scholars take this and say, we really think Jesus is referring to Christians when he talks about the least of these brothers of mine, that he's referring to this inside group. And when all nations are brought, so all nations will be brought and judged on how they welcomed Christians. And some people go uh, even farther and they say, this is Christian missionaries. They're the ones bringing the gospel. They're the ones bringing, they're the, ones bringing the light and the message of Jesus. And so I think they have an argument there to say, I was in trouble, Jesus says, and the people that were bringing my message, you welcomed. And when they were in trouble, you welcomed me. Now that's, un that's unsettling for me because that's not how I've read it in the past. Uh, and that's not how I've really grown up reading the passage. And I've had to chew on that. And humbly before you, I'll, I'll say this week, that, that caused me uh, stress because that's kind of like the parable, the teaching revolves around who are these brothers that he's talking about. And I'm not sure that I can fully go there. I think, I, I think there's some value. I think there's some validity to the argument 
that Christians bring the message of Jesus, that Christians bring Jesus to the world. And how people respond to that does have eternal consequences, does have, uh, it means something in eternity. But um, given kind of the trajectory of the New Testament and and the Old Testament and how over and over and over we have been called to reach out to people in need, I would tend to cast a larger net than that. I would, tend, I would tend to say that Jesus is not just saying the world will be judged on how it treats my Christians. More that I, the world will be judged on how you treat me. And how you treat people matters to me. How you treat people matters for me. The reason that the, the thing that put me over the edge in coming to uh, land there was if Jesus was really teaching, the world will be judged for how it treats you, that becomes a message of hope. That becomes a message of comfort to say, okay, one day I'll watch people get judged based on, on, on their treatment of me. Hopefully good, but maybe bad, and maybe I can stick it to them even at the gates. Okay? It's a message of comfort and, and consolation. But in the context of where Jesus is in Matthew 24 and 25, that's not really what he's doing. In Matthew 24 and 25, he is pushing his disciples toward greater faithfulness. He's pushing them. With the bridesmaids, he says, be ready. And with uh, the talents, he said, be faithful. And this is an extension of that, I think. He says, and this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. So in Micah 6, 6 through 8, is an Old Testament reference that I think uh, would get some traction. And Micah is wrestling uh, with, what do I bring before God? And I think we can maybe put it up. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? You can almost picture the judgment at the end. What, with what am I going to come before God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then the answer is he has told you, O oh man, what is good. Like he's, he, to- he tells us what he wants from us, what he expects from us. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice? and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And it's not restricted. It's, it's a kind of a wide net. I want you to be people who do justice. And I want, people, I want you to love kindness. And I want, you to, I want you to walk humbly with God. That is to say, I'm not all that. I know who I am. I know who I am. And I think neither too highly of me nor too lowly of myself. Because I know who I am in Christ. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk uh, with humility. And in, in Isaiah 58 is another passage. Isaiah 58, 1 through 11. He's actually uh, he's, he's kind of sticking it even further to them. to say, I want to challenge you with what I expect from you. 
Isaiah 58, 1 through 11 says, Cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. So this is, he's calling out people that seek God daily. He's calling out people that live for God daily. But he says, it's as if there are a people that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask, they ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. And they start to cry out to him. We have fasted and you see it not, God. We have humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it. Behold, in the day of your fast, God says, you seek your own pleasure. When you serve middle, middle school kids, you want the recognition. You oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is this not the fast that I choose? This is what I expect, God says to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring to the homeless poor and bring the homeless poor into your house? And when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh, then, then, then shall your light break forth like the dawn. And your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear, God, rear guard, and then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom shall be as the noonday, and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places, and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. I, I hear so many of the echoes of Isaiah 58 in Matthew 25. And Jesus over and over and over identifies times of stress, duress, times of crisis, and he says, you met me in those places. And I love it. And I have a blessing for you, an inheritance for you because of that. This gives a challenge toward increased faithfulness. And given the context of Matthew 24 and 25, um, this one seems like the one that I land on. To Jesus, how we treat people, especially those in need, is a reflection of how we treat him. In Matthew 22, when Jesus is asked, what's the, what's the most important commandment? He says, uh, love God with everything you have and love people. And he, he says it in a way where they cannot be separated. Like you cannot love God and not love people. And you cannot really love people if you don't love God. You cannot get to the depths of love 
if you have not experienced the love of God yourself. And if you think you have experienced the depth of love and you are turning away from people, then you are fooling yourself. Loving God and loving people are inseparable. And this is a surprise. What does it say that the sheep in this story, what does it say that the people are surprised? Wait, when, when, when did we see you, Jesus? What does it say? Maybe that they weren't doing it for recognition. Maybe that they weren't doing it for points. They weren't doing it for a t-shirt. They weren't doing it to make a list. They weren't doing it um, out of any kind of uh, compulsion except that's, that's who they were. That's the kind of people that they were, that their actions reflected their identity. And we got to hold on to that idea that our actions reflect our identity. But then Jesus has the hard part because there's a whole group of people who have not yet been addressed. And in verse 41, he says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. He says, There is a group of people who will not experience the presence of God forever. That there is a time coming when Jesus comes back, when he sits on the throne, when he judges as king, and there will be a group of people who are cursed. And he says, why? It's, and it's, a, it's almost an exact repeat. I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was naked, I was a stranger, I was sick. I was in prison, only this time you didn't help me. You didn't help me, Jesus says. And it's a surprise again. Like they were saying, Jesus, if we had known that was you, we would have done it for you. And you can, I can see him talking to a church. Because sometimes in church we love doing things for God. And if we know it's for God, and if we know it's for something of great importance, then we're all in. But if it doesn't seem all that worthy, um, my time is valuable. I'm not going to stop and let my day be interrupted for this. I've got to steward it well. And Jesus said, when you didn't do these things for people in need, for people in dire need, you didn't do them for me. And they don't get a slap on the wrist. They get eternal punishment. Eternal means it doesn't end. This is not a pretty picture. And this, this would not be a popular picture in our day. If God is love... Everyone gets to dance forever. And Jesus makes it very clear that when he sits as judge, there will be people who are not on the winning side of things. There are people who are not on the happy side of things. There are people who will go away forever. What is the point of this? I, I mean... 
maybe in simplest form, like this life matters. Your life matters. And what you do with Jesus matters. And how you help people matters. We will stand before the king. And it's pretty common for us to hear, only God can judge me. And it's true. I'm, no, I'm in no place to judge. That's not my position, and it's not your position. But it would be foolish for us to kind of ignore a call to say, but one day the judge is coming. And while only God can judge you, you can count on it. He will, and he'll judge me. And I don't think anyone, anyone is exempt from that. We should be aware. We should live in light, live in the light that God is not just our friend. He is not just our brother. He is our king, and he will judge us. But what does this say about grace? What does this parable, does this parable kind of negate grace? Because if I'm judged and if I go to heaven based on how I treat people, then what, what's all that about uh, I can't do anything to earn it? And everything about what Jesus did for me, that he takes my place? And it's a really good question. And to that I would answer, this uh, teaching doesn't tell the whole story. This teaching doesn't tell the whole story. We ask the question, so am I saved by grace through faith? Or am I saved by my works and by the way that I treat people? And I don't, I'm not convinced that Jesus saw conflict between those two. I'm not convinced that Jesus saw conflict. And so we have to step into something, I think, sticky in that. This parable deals with what's going on inside us. The Pharisees did all kinds of good things, but they were hollow. And on the flip side would be somebody who thinks they accepted Christ but they go on unchanged. They pray a prayer, and they think, his grace just covered me, and I'm good to go. And if I don't change another bit in my life for the rest of my life, man, I'm going to heaven, and I know it with great confidence. And this parable or teaching makes us uncomfortable around that because your actions reflect your identity. Your actions, and even the motivations behind your actions, reflect your identity. One commentator asks the question, are you a person characterized by the love and mercy evidenced in Jesus' kingdom, which is what faith is all about? Or are you characterized by no concern for those in need? Because sins of omission or the good stuff we're supposed to be doing that we don't do, is just as flagrant a sin as what we would identify as the bad stuff we do. What we don't do is just as serious. And so Jesus has an invitation and a challenge to a kingdom that is, it is about limitless grace. You cannot earn it. You do not deserve it. And nothing you do can earn it more. But it's also a kingdom of limitless demand. 
that limitless grace and limitless demand are uh, together in this. That this costs you nothing, but it demands everything. That Jesus' gift is free, but it will cost you your life. You cannot come to Jesus and be unchanged. You cannot, you cannot accept Jesus and then go on living your life however you want. You cannot be friends with Jesus and not recognize him as your master because he plays both. You ask the question, are we saved by grace alone? Absolutely, yes, without hesitation. And nothing we do can earn us a spot. But as a result of that, and evidence of that, we begin to change from the inside out so that we see people differently. We look at people differently and we start to see Jesus. We look at people differently and we start to see people that we could help and we start to see people that we have, we have a heart for and we want to help. And it's an outpouring, it's an outflow of what God has given us. We are not earning it, but because we have been given it, we, be, we pour ourselves out. And Jesus says, if you're not pouring yourselves out, you might want to question, has your heart been changed? Have you, have you experienced the great love and grace of God? Because if you have, it changes you. If you have, it changes you. You cannot stay the same. So how, how do you go to people? Um, in the next few months, I hope that you get a chance to meet a man uh, named uh, Cassell Grice. Cassell Grice uh, is preparing to plant a church here in Madison, just down the road on South Park. Uh, but it's a different kind of church. Uh, Cassell uh, was born hearing impaired, deeply, deeply hearing impaired, near deaf. And he, he grew up in church, not being able to hear anything and learn sign language. His wife is completely deaf, and she signs, and they're going to plant a church for the deaf, for the deaf community. He says, we've got all kinds of churches in Madison, but we don't have a single ministry that's really reaching out to the deaf community. And it is a community that is overlooked because, we, we don't, because they're unseen, because they tend to hermit away, hide away, because they, they have such a hard time interacting with culture. Most of the deaf community live in poverty, and Cassell uh, has a heart for the deaf community. He's grown up in it. He met Jesus. He met his wife who loves Jesus, and he wants to pour into the Madison area. And I want you to meet him. But he's an example of someone who has been so transformed by Jesus that he starts to see people differently. And he starts to go after people who are uh, in great trouble. And I love it. So you, you might be somebody, maybe there's somebody here today that has a welling up to do something like big like that. But Jesus, even here in Matthew 25, doesn't just announce the big things. Jesus identifies clothes. He identifies basic supplies basic practical ways of loving. 
So when we get up and we talk about let's, let's, let's give a ton of binders to write middle school, I think that that counts. That's this. That's seeing people in need and saying, what can we do? It's a part of that. And it's, it's meaningful. And it matters. And I want you to buy binders. When we talk about the Soul Hope women's event, they say, bring in your old jeans. That's, we can offer something to a woman. We can offer shoes. And it's, it's not going to cost us much there. But it's a piece, and it gets at seeing people and seeing Jesus in people and saying, how can we help? I would say, when you're here on a Sunday morning and you see somebody you don't know, part of the implication of Matthew 25 may mean go introduce yourself so that you can find out where people are. We, we, cannot, we cannot help people that we don't know about. And just like proximity, getting up close to people helps us see people. I would challenge you, maybe you feel dumb, and I'll admit that to you too. Like there are people, I, I don't know all your names, and I want to, and I struggle with that. And sometimes I see somebody, I'm like, I feel so much shame because I know they've been going to DR longer than I have. And... <laughs> Uh, hey, are you new here? No, I've been coming for eight years. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm kind of new. We can just kind of say grace. Like, if you don't know somebody, say, ha, like, I don't know you. What's your name? Okay, that's kind of awkward, but thanks for trying to get to know me. If you see somebody you don't know, maybe introduce yourself. And maybe in the process, uh, a relationship forms just a little bit. And maybe in that, you see somebody who has a need that you could help. If we started to look at people like that, and we actually humanize people, I think God has the world to show us of, of ways that we could help. If you're involved on the facilities team, or in kids' ministry, or with Justin coming up and to doing student ministry, you are getting into the lives of people with stuff that matters. And it matters to Jesus. We are not saved by works. But our works reveal our identity. Our works give evidence to our identity. If we think we are in good standing with God, and yet we do not care about people, we are deceived. People matter. John says in 1 John 3, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And then he kind of comes back to this refrain, We love because he first loved us. Love is not a means to an end. Love is an expression of our identity. If this passage makes you uncomfortable, good. Then it's doing, I think, what Jesus intended it to do. May we bring glory to our King Jesus. May we be transformed and given a heart to love him and love what he loves. May we find our identity in who he says 
we are. And may we grow in our faithfulness so that our heart for God is reflected in our heart for people. Let's pray. Father, you are the God of comfort who comforts us in our trouble. You come and you meet us when there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. You pick us up and you heal us and you welcome us home with celebration and joy. And then as members of your family, you call us to do that for others. I pray that you would unsettle us this week. I pray that you would continue to twist this in us, that we would be unsettled, that we would continue to ask the question, Jesus, what do you want of me? And though without hesitation we affirm that we are saved completely and wholly by your grace, May we be people who are faithful. May we be people who are changed by you. To Jesus, our King, we give you permission to transform us. We give you permission to change our eyes, to change our heart. And we ask that you would make our actions reflect our identity. Give us compassion. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.